0: I'm Bonnie Glaser, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this episode of the China Power podcast, we're discussing how China influences the policies of other countries around the world. What are the tools that China uses to shape the policies of other states? And how can nations recognize Chinese influence activities? To help us analyze these questions, We're talking with Dr. Anne-Marie Brady, who's a global fellow at the Wilson Center and a professor of political science at the University of Canterbury, New Zealand, where she specializes in Chinese and polar politics. Dr. Brady, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Bonnie. So you've published a paper recently um, to very wide acclaim, uh, about China's political influence activities. Can you describe some of those activities? You, you talked about them as magic weapons um, for China. So what are political influence activities, um, broadly speaking, and, and how can they be used as weapons?
1: Yeah, so the paper uh, is a conference paper that I presented in Washington, D.C. Uh, in uh, September. And if people are interested to read the paper in full, they can go to the website of the Wilson Center. The paper is called Magic Weapons, Political Influence Activities under Xi Jinping. And in the paper, I provide a template of China's um, political influence activities which um, I think other countries uh, may want to use as a checklist to see to the extent to which they are um, also experiencing political influence activities. And I use my case study uh, for the paper as my own country, New Zealand. So in the paper, um, I, I, I used China's, ter- China's own term for describing uh, political influence activities. Uh, magic weapons, Fa Bao is the Chinese term. Magic weapons, or Fa Bao to use the Chinese term, is, um, is actually a Taoist and a Buddhist concept. And it's meant both literally and figuratively. These were weapons that could not be defeated, and it's also uh, conceptually, that it's uh, something that meaning something that uh, you know is not literally a weapon, but uh, con- conceptually something that's very powerful. So the Chinese Communist Party um, has used this analogy to describe their influence activities amongst non-party members in China and also uh, externally their external influence activities um, for over uh, 60 years or so. Uh, Zidong first raised that term. And um, what we in the West would call an influence activities is what communist states call the United Front. The United Front concept was raised and and theorized by Lenin in a famous paper on left-wing infantilism. And the Chinese Communist Party is a very good student of Lenin. And um, they have um, really made a lot of effort in the United Front activities. I said, it's called one of their magic weapons for one of the three magic weapons this, which um, Mao Zedong credited for the success of the Chinese Revolution. So broadly speaking, political influence activities both in China and, and in other countries as well are efforts to co-opt and um, infiltrate a nation's economic and political elite, and also to influence policy.
0: So have such political influence activities been a part of Chinese foreign policy for a very long time, or is this basically a recent development?
1: Well, under um, the leadership of General Secretary of the Communist Party, Xi Jinping, uh, United Front activities have gone into overdrive. Um, so. They have been um, active in the Chinese Communist Party has been active in the United Front or political influence activities, as I said, for uh, as long as there's been a Communist Party in China, um, which is from 1921. But And it was important in the years before 1949. Um, But uh, in more recent years, um, the United Front Department has not been uh, a particularly strong department within the, the CCP bureaucracy but um, since Xi Jinping came to power in 2012 he has um, elevated the role of the United Front Work Department which is the key agency coordinating United Front or influence activities but not the only one. Um, and um, it's really gone into overdrive what China's um, trying to do, both to influence foreign publics and also work in, within China on, on United Front activities aimed at bringing together um, people who are outside the party. And the Financial Times, by the way, did a very um, useful, uh, detailed article on the various departments of the United Front of people are interested to follow up. It was in October this year and authored by James King and
0: um, uh, Lucy Hornby and Jamil Andalini. Apart from the United Front Department, what are the other uh, agencies? I assume the Propaganda Department is involved. Is there foreign ministry involvement? And do you think this is really very effectively organized? Yeah, the, the Chinese
1: Communist Party commonly will have a multi-agency response to a particular policy area. Um, so people who uh, know about Chinese politics will have heard of the Xitong and the coal. Um, and that means a supra-bureaucracy coordinated to deal with a particular policy issue. For example, there's the propaganda, which brings together all uh, government agencies to do with um, the public sphere, essentially. And there's one for foreign affairs, and there's one for um, politics and law. Now, the United Front is led by the Department of United Front Work, but the Ministry of State Security is involved, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is involved, the International Liaison Department of the Chinese Communist Party is involved. Yes, the Central Propaganda Department and its various affiliates in the Office for Overseas Chinese Affairs for example is involved and then there are um, other smaller agencies such as the which were very prominent in the Cold War era and then really didn't have much of a role um, after reform and opening up began such as the uh, Chinese Association for Friendship with Foreign Countries which the Chinese name is Yoshia. Du, now they have now got a prominent role because The um, sister city relations um, have become newly important to China because that's a vehicle for channeling a lot of the One Belt, One Road activities is through um, city-to-city links and um, this organization, the Youxie or the Organizations for Friendship with Foreign Countries, they are coordinating this activity. So it's multi-agency, and that's very typical of how China will deal with a particular policy program.
0: In your paper, you write that the government uh, of China has prioritized interaction with overseas Chinese communities and has used these relationships to advance uh, Beijing's interest. Can you elaborate on that? Um, How does China interact with these overseas ethnic Chinese, um, and how do they use them for these political influence activities?
1: Well, China um, is very concerned to manage um, and, indeed, control the overseas Chinese population. Uh, it's been a priority since, particularly since 1989. I mean, there's, there's always been, um, since the founding of the People's Republic of China in 1949, they um, they set up the office for overseas Chinese affairs, but the concern about the political attitudes of the overseas Chinese community became really acute after 1989 because um, there was a lot of overseas Chinese support for the student protesters in Tiananmen Square in 1989. So, as um, a US scholar Nicholas Iftimieds, um, documented very early on, uh, early study, uh, China's made it a priority. To um, to try and bring this community, uh, at the very least, um, to neutralise them, and even better if they can make them, if it's possible to make them, uh, you know, agents uh, in fact, acting in favour um, of China's policies. And to, I mean, not that they have to be party members, but that they be patriotic uh, and active in their support of China's agenda. So. As I documented in the paper, um, uh, there are a couple of key ways in which um, the, the party reaches out to this community and again with the again, with the ov- overall uh, emphasis, re-emphasis on the importance of the United Front, the party is ha- under Xi has re-emphasised the importance of working with the overseas Chinese community and, and bringing them in, uh, in to support of the party. So. Uh, that the policies are uh, working and targeting any Chinese uh, ethnic Chinese politicians overseas and try uh, um, trying to get them to um, be cooperating and co-opted um, uh, with the, the party's message the Chinese Communist Party's message and the board policies of China working with uh, Chinese community groups sponsoring uh Particular groups that are uh, aligned, closely aligned with the embassy, Um, and a new policy, which is is, um, particularly um, was startling to me, is to harmonise or fuhu the overseas Chinese media with the Chinese media, because um, you know with the porous information environment um, that we, in globalized information environment that we all exist in, uh, even China, even with the Great Firewall, it's really is a concern to the Chinese government what is discussed about China in the Chinese language media. Um, you know, in the case of Guo Longwei, the uh, the Chinese businessman who has been very um, open in his criticism and outspoken in his criticism of corruption in China this year, and then the, the very strong response from the Chinese government and putting pressure on, on Twitter, for example, his account was closed this week finally, and pressure on, uh, on the Hudson Institute not to have him speak is an example of that. So broadly speaking, the Chinese media. Uh, outside uh, China has over steadily, it's taken many years, has um, really been brought uh, into a state where the content of that media, with the exception of the Falun Gong papers and uh, a few uh, pro Taiwan papers that you might find in the US, um, but you certainly wouldn't find in a smaller market like New Zealand or Australia, uh, the overseas Chinese media if you open one of their papers is really not dissimilar from reading a paper in Shanghai or Beijing. They get their content uh, from Xinhua. Um, or the radio stations get uh, live feeds from China Radio International, these exchanges of personnel, very much similar to what we see in China, is called the diaodong, moving people around from agencies. So people who would have been working in government media agencies in China will be moved down to work in in media agencies abroad. And um, it's even got to the point that... uh, Chinese Communist Party propaganda officials are being sent to countries to give direct oral instructions and this is what I documented in my paper of um, a visit uh, mid-year uh, where, um, the, to New Zealand where the heads of all the um, Chinese language media organisations with the exception of the, the Falun Gong paper plus a prominent New Zealand Chinese uh, politician were brought to get instructions brought together to get instructions from the Deputy Director um, of the Propaganda Division of the Office Office of Overseas Chinese Affairs. So if that's not an example of interference in the politics of of another country, I really don't know what is. That's very direct, uh, giving the political line to the media um, from China uh, into the Chinese language media in New Zealand, and it's happening in other countries as well.
0: Have you encountered any examples of countries that have come to recognize the extent of China's media strategy and its involvement with uh, ethnic Chinese in their countries, actually developing any kind of a policy to counter these efforts, to push back, to uh, maybe pass new laws, regulations that will prevent uh, China from pushing its own interests within their borders?
1: No, I think that hasn't happened yet, and um, I think that's what needs to happen next because we're, in my country, um, where we look at the – we're very concerned about media monopolies, but the the attention has been to – the ownership of newspapers, and I think that's the same of or, or other television stations, whatever. It's the same in the UK and Australia, and um, definitely uh, it's a it's a debate in a lot of countries about not wanting to have one voice or one, uh, you know one company dominating the mainstream media market. Now, what we're seeing here is not one company but one government and an external government. So that's a different kind of monopoly. Um, but a monopoly nonetheless, and perhaps much more pernicious. So um, this is a situation that we haven't encountered before. And um, I have argued in the paper that um, we, in, in my country and in and, and other countries, this is something that needs to be addressed.
0: How does the Belt and Road Initiative factor into some of these type Of activities, do do you see that there uh, are Chinese efforts to use the BRI to influence other countries' policies? And if so, how?
1: Yeah, the Belt Road Initiative um, is about creating a China-centered global Mm -hmm. order, a globalisation too, and it's economic assistance to various countries, although um, they will have to pay for it. Um, in return for political favours. So um, it really is uh, an important part of this um, United Front effort because the goal of China's um, United Front activities is increasing China's um, political influence globally to be able to influence and shape the decision-making of foreign governments and society. And um, so offering... uh, economic sweeteners is one way in which you can influence
0: foreign governments. So, as you said, the case study for your paper was uh, your own country, New Zealand. Can you talk a little bit more about how New Zealand has been subjected to Chinese political influence activities?
1: Well, as I documented in the paper, um, we... uh, the, the the three we haven't had a lot of ethnic chinese mps historically in our parliament but um the of the the four who have come into our parliament three of them i uh, was able to clearly uh trace their Involvement and very active involvement in United Front activities, um, a very very prominent role in this in New Zealand, in um, really I mean almost literally hand in hand with Chinese embassy officials in guiding the Chinese population and um, and legitimising the activities of the embassy to. Uh, create and, and support um, pro-China, pro-PRC uh, cultural groups and uh, China, uh, China's sort of frames on what was acceptable for um, promoting about Chinese culture in New Zealand and so on. So that's one aspect is that our, our um, ethnic Chinese MPs have got caught up in this. Um, and I know from talking to um, these Uh, uh, two of them actually, Um, they were under severe pressure as soon as they got into parliament to to get involved in these activities and I I don't think that's unique to New Zealand. Um, So I mentioned how our Chinese language media in New Zealand, with the exception of the pro Falun Gong um, media, is now being coordinated by the CCP's uh, propaganda department through the Office of uh, Chinese Affairs um we've got community groups are being uh, monitored um their cultural activities are uh, monitored if they are regarded as you know not acceptable they won't be promoted or there'll be in other ways that there'll be pressure put to um to, to for them not to, to go ahead um and there, I mean, there always were, of course, um, indigenous um, New Zealand, you know, New Zealand Chinese communities. Very diverse, just like in the US and other countries. So, there, by no means uh, does the majority of New Zealand Chinese um, support this kind of organisation and uh, falling in line with the pro-China um, uh, response. But um, the 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 embassy and its um, its um, supporting um, intermediaries have been um, sponsoring new groups and um, favouring offering opportunities to new groups and coordinating these groups uh, because there's a lot. We have a diverse community and a diverse range of um, activities. Coordinating now, them those groups under. Uh, China sponsored cultural centres, and this is an international policy. You can see this um, in other countries, and it's been they have annual meetings in China. These these cultural leaders who are sponsored by China to coordinate the policy. We've also seen in New Zealand that there've been political donations from individuals from uh, Chinese. Uh, ethnic Chinese, usually recent migrants to New Zealand with very close and documented relations with the Chinese Communist Party. and there've even been donations coming in um, from China um, into our political um, campaigns, which, because of um, gaps in our legislation um, around the issue of campaign donations, um, that they've been able to be you know, been able to be accepted. Um, So, you know, there's a there's a problem about in our democracy where we really don't have enough um, You know the proper safeguards in place to prevent this and there's also been um, a real uh, blurring of economic political and personal interests of um, Politicians in our uh, both of our major political parties in New Zealand, which is really concerning. I mean historically New Zealand's been one of the states that's been rated as the least corrupt. And as documented in the paper, um, uh, China's ratcheting up of the um, political influence activities uh, under Xi Jinping um, has really had a deleterious effect on, um, on the clear separation of personal interests um, with political roles in New Zealand.
0: What's been the reaction then of uh, the government in Wellington uh, to your findings, uh, to the policy recommendations that you've made? And um, what's been the reaction maybe in the legislature among the public to the revelation of the extent of these Chinese influence activities in New Zealand?
1: Well, that's an interesting question because um, the uh, as the, the paper... Um, was I presented it in Washington DC um, in um, early September and um, it was made public on the Wilson Centre website um, two days after my presentation. That was the week before the New Zealand election. Um, and um, it was a busy week for the media. The politicians were very busy. Um, the opposition politicians... Um, some of them responded. There was a very strong response from Mr. Winston Peters, who's the leader of um, New Zealand First, and is now our Deputy MP and foreign, Deputy Prime Minister and Foreign Minister. There was a, a muted response from um, the leader, then leader of the opposition, Ms. Jacinda Ardern, who is now our Prime Minister, saying she will look into it, and I haven't heard any more public comment from her. Um, And um, the then Prime Minister, uh, Mr Bill English, uh, dismissed the um, reports about it and in subsequent to his party um, was um, not, is not part of the new coalition. Um, government and he's now in opposition and in in interviews again he's continued to downplay and dismiss concerns that were raised in the paper for example uh, one aspect which is somewhat separate to the um, talk about the United Front is that there was it was mentioned in the paper that there was a one of our MPs um, was working in Chinese military intelligence for 15 years and um, he hid that. He did not. He he disguised that by omission on his his citizenship application, um, and um, he has this MP. His name is Dr. Jen. He has been. He was on a um, committee for foreign affairs and trade for several years, um, and um, was the right hand. Uh, uh man for whenever there are any senior visits of senior politicians he was right beside the prime minister of the day john key and then bill english when he became prime minister and also visited with the right hand man when there were trips up to china um to to um formal delegations from new zealand government but our former prime minister again has um downplayed any concerns about this individual and we've had no comment from Labour about it and New Zealand First has also gone quiet. So, But the media, um, the New Zealand media has taken a very strong interest in this research and um, there's also been very, very positive public support. So, um, you know, the government's getting settled in, the new government. Um, they've only just Formed the coalition only a couple of weeks ago, the coalition government. So I expect it's watched this space. Um, I would hope, very much hope so, in, in anyway, because the concerns in the paper really are really do undermine um, New Zealand's international reputation as, as a, a a country that's free of corruption. Really, very severely undermines that
0: reputation. I'm sure that uh, China has been conducting these kinds of political influence activities in many countries, certainly countries where there's large uh, overseas Chinese, ethnic Chinese communities, uh, places like uh, Malaysia, perhaps uh, Singapore, uh, and uh, even uh, as far as the United States, I think um, we've seen some of this as well. And yet, the uh, country seems seem very slow to be waking up to the to the dangers. And I wonder if you could try to project out maybe uh, a few years from now, do you think that China is going to be successful in these activities, that it's going to help or harm, for example, its uh, efforts to uh, better relations with countries, to increase its soft power, um, or you know, would it have the opposite impact? Would it undermine those objectives? Um, and do you see that maybe there will be a pushback by uh, countries that might compel China to rethink this whole strategy?
1: Well, the conference where I presented my paper was a workshop where a whole lot of other academics were also presenting um, research it wasn't open to the public because we were workshopping our ideas um, at that point. Um, they were talking about a whole range of countries. We, we had papers on Australia, on Japan, on China's political influence, that is on Australia, Japan, Burma, the United States, the UK, the 16 plus one, EU. Um, this is a, uh, a Czech Republic was another one. This is a international issue. We're all being affected by it and um, all our governments need to address it. Now, in some parts of the world, not my part of the world, Russia's um, the other actor that is very involved in political influence activities. And for some countries, the United States is also very involved in political influence activities. So um, they, the influence activities have always been with us. They were a dominant feature of the Cold War. And in this changing global order, um, we're just going to see um, more and more of them. So I think that countries need to be prepared to defend their political systems from outside influence. They need to look to their legislation and um, look to their best practices about what's politically acceptable. So what China is doing, as I said, is um, part of a a global pattern and we're we're only going to see, see more of it. Um, China's you mentioned soft power. Um, China's definition of soft power is different from uh, Joseph Nye's one. Joseph Nye is critical of the Chinese interpretation. Um, but China has taken uh, Nye's term and um, they are, um, you know, they use different measures and by there, they, they'd use different measures, but they have the outcome which he says that soft power, um, a strong soft power will acquire. So China's measures are to use party state agencies and their affiliates um, to, to, to develop soft power. So it's a much broader notion than Nye's interpretation of soft power, which was very much about attractive power and the outcome for China is increasingly, we're seeing it, an ability to shape foreign public, public opinion and um, to in, influence the decision making of foreign governments and societies. The broad acceptance of the Belt Road initiatives internationally is a good indicator of that.
0: Well, I really want to thank you for bringing uh, attention to this important issue uh, for the great research that you've done and for joining us today uh, for our podcast. We've been talking with Dr. Anne-Marie Brady, who is a global fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Scholars, as well as a professor of political science at the University of Canterbury, New Zealand. Thanks again. Thanks, Bonnie.